Katie Davis with a story, an old moldy one. So this image of penicillin mold looks as if you're looking down on an island almost in a yellow sea looking on down onto treetops almost with a kind of um, little tiny spines and surrounded by a circle of white that then becomes this kind of milky yellow field that it's in so it seems like we're looking at a close-up of a close-up of something in a petri dish Susan Burns, an Ohio artist, likes the color and the movement of mold. Mold is unruly, sometimes sly, temperamental, surprising, spongy or slimy, and it's best to wash it off with bleach. That's what we do with mold. As it moves out, it's, it's almost as if there's this sort of feathery, whiter field around the outside of it. And it's you can see how the mold has migrated because outside of that ring is the beginnings of another bit of mold growing. And you can see... Enough with the mold, you're thinking. Hang on, here's the backstory. London, 1928. Biologist Alexander Fleming had a messy lab. There were test tubes, beakers, rubber bands, string, and Petri dishes. And this story of a mistake has been told and retold. Researchers have questioned some details, and still it survives, like mold re-emerging in books, movies, and cartoons. Having been brought up on a farm in Scotland, scientist Alexander Fleming wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty, examining nasty bacteria like Staphylococcus aureus, which in humans, as well as horses, can cause death, as well as vomiting and boils. In the days before antibiotics, a cold, even a blister, could get infected and lead to death. So here's the story. Alexander Fleming came home from a month-long vacation, and his lab bench was full of dirty Petri dishes. No surprise there. But instead of throwing them away, he stopped to think, what might have caused some of his sample to die and the rest to live? After a lot of time and effort in his lab, Fleming worked out that some of his sample had been contaminated by a particular fungus which he then managed to grow himself. As an ex-soldier in World War I, he'd seen hundreds of soldiers die due to bacterial infection, and he figured that if the fungus could kill bacteria on his bench, it might also kill bacteria in wounded soldiers. And he was right. Fleming studied that mold. How did it kill the bacteria? He called it mold juice, and later a more proper name. Having renamed his mold juice penicillin... It was ready for public consumption, in time for the next war, on D-Day. Penicillin was a mistake, yes. Alexander Fleming called it chance. Oh, my name is Phil Plate. I am an astronomer and science communicator, and I write the Bad Astronomy blog for sci-fi.com. I was taught that you you try to be right, right? You memorize facts. um, You try to uh, repeat them on a test. A teacher asks you a question, you try to get it right in class. And so you're never really tested on methodology. Maybe in some 
math classes where you have like uh, geometry, where they say, prove that the interior angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees, something like that. Um, and then you go through a series of proofs. But other than that, uh, you're, you're never taught that making mistakes is okay. Um, the only time, may, and maybe the only other time I would say, since, since I'm thinking of this as you've asked it, and I've never really thought about this question this way, um, in um, writing class, for example, uh, you would come up with a, an outline, a first draft, right? A rough draft, which you then fix and correct. And, and, and so there's a, there's a process there to where you come up with, um, your finished essay. And in fact, when I was a kid, they would call it the, the perfect paragraph, the perfect essay. There was a name like that, the five paragraph perfect essay, and so even then, you're, you're striving for perfection. You're not striving just to make steps along the way. The ultimate goal is always to be right. And I, I, mm, now that I think about it, since you phrased it that way, um, that's troublesome. Phil Plate remembers an exam in grad school with a 10-part problem. In step two, he used a minus sign instead of a plus. The professor looked at his work and saw the mistake. And that was a big moment in my life when the professor, the professor then said, I'm going to give you not 10% credit. I'm going to give you, you know, 60 or 70 or whatever percent he gave me saying, you knew what you were doing. You just sort of screwed up. And that's, that was a big time where I realized, yeah, I mean, most of this is not about memorizing and everything. It's about understanding what you're doing. Phil Plate is an evangelist, an evangelist for mistakes. And he's seen a few epic ones. So the story is that um, people have been searching for planets around other stars for a long, long time, many, many decades. And it's extremely difficult to do this. The, the effect of the planet on the star is incredibly small. And nobody had ever successfully shown that there was a planet orbiting another star. And then in, um, in 91, a couple of astronomers, um, Andrew Lynn and Matthew Bales, announced that they had found a planet orbiting another star. And it wasn't just a star like the sun. It was a pulsar. And these are bizarre objects. They're the, the, the collapsed cores of massive stars after these stars explode. So, so really big stars explode um, in supernovae. And the core collapses, and that's how you get black holes. But if the star isn't quite massive enough, you get a neutron star. And it spins rapidly, has a very strong magnetic field. We call these pulsars. Well, it turns out that the beauty of a pulsar is it gives off a, um, a radio blip in very, very exacting intervals. Bip, 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 bip. And you can measure the time between these pulses, and they're, it's almost always exactly the same. And if a planet is orbiting that pulsar, it's tugging on that object, and the pulses get affected. They arrive at different times, slightly different times. And that's what they thought they had found. And so they made this big announcement saying, um, we found this change in the arrival times of these pulses. It must be caused by a planet. And there was uh, a big foo about that. A lot of people um, were celebrating it. Other people were skeptical. But then it turns out uh, some comments from astronomers said, you know, the, the change that you're seeing in these pulses appears to be a simple multiple of Earth's orbital period. And that's, that's a big red flag. When you're looking at something in space and you say, this thing is changing and it's changing on a period of 365 days, the first thing people are going to say is, 
Well, that sounds like, you know, the orbit of the Earth is affecting your measurements, not that this is a real thing. And it turns out, sure enough, when they looked at their data more carefully, they realized, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. The Earth going around the sun was affecting their observations. And when they subtracted that away, their, their planet disappeared, basically. The, the, the change that they saw went away. And so they had to stand up and say, yeah, we made a mistake. This is wrong. We did not discover a planet around a pulsar. And um, Andrew Lynn did this at an American Astronomical Society meeting, which is a big meeting of astronomers in the U.S. And amazingly, he stood up and said, uh, yeah, we, we messed up. This is not a planet, and we apologize. And everybody applauded him. They were proud of him for standing up and admitting this mistake, a very embarrassing mistake. And I was actually, when I heard about this, I was quite pleased. I thought that was pretty amazing. Um, the really fun thing about this is that the next guy, literally, to stand up and give his talk at this, at this meeting, um, Alexander Volshan, he and his team had been looking at a different pulsar, and they found the same effect. And it turns out they knew that the Earth's motion around the sun could affect their data. They accounted for that, and their planet persisted. At times, Phil Plate says people try to shame him over mistakes. Shaming is not a scientific process, I would say. In fact, I've had people try to shame me for mistakes like that, but I refuse to be shamed. Am I embarrassed? Yes. But am I shameful? No, because I've learned from that mistake. Uh, I try not to make them again. I, I try to fully own up to it. And like I said, I've made some, some pretty big errors. <laughs> and then I'll follow up with a mea culpa and say, here's how I messed up. Here's the mistake I made. I also try to say, this is why that mistake happened. Here's what I was thinking. And that, I think, is important. People say when you apologize, don't talk about why you made the mistake that you're apologizing for. And it's like, well, if I've hurt somebody's feelings... I understand that I shouldn't try to explain what I was thinking because that kind of digs a hole and it's not about me, it's about their feelings. On the other hand, when it's science, if that thought process that I was employing led to my mistake, then I have to examine it and say, oh, here is, here is what happened. I was distracted by a phone call or uh, you know, I made a typo and for some reason that typo made me think of some other thing and I just went with it. And so now I have circled that mistake. I, I understand what I did. I've shown a light on it, and I can try not to make it again. And I think that is the key. In a story I read many years ago, somebody said the main part of the word absolution is solution. Um, so, you know, people can forgive if they see that you're trying to fix the process that led to that error in the first place. They're filling bottles with the medium in which will grow the mold that produces penicillin. Canadian output of this amazing drug, perhaps the medical discovery of the war, has been greatly increased. The medium is here being sterilized, an early process which is later followed by its inoculation with the seeds of penicillin mold. After its incubation, we see in these bottles the mold that contains this new life-saving product. Later on, other scientists discovered a way to extract penicillin from the mold, and they shared a Nobel Prize with Alexander Fleming. Fleming began to paint watercolors with the mold. Tiny portraits, a woman giving a bottle to a baby, two stick figures dancing, and a face. The Petri dish was the frame. In the art, there's a 
kind of concept of wabi-sabi. And it's a way of coming across something that you didn't expect and appreciating it for what it is and looking into it and trying to understand that mistake or that crack in the, you know, when the ceramic in the kiln cracks instead of throwing the pot away or, or when it breaks and is repaired, it's repaired with gold and the crack itself is revered understood as a whole new form. I have to applaud Dr. Fleming for really examining what this material is and why it developed um, and finding something that we would normally discard immediately in nature and seeing in it the possibility of something very valuable. saying you should go out and make mistakes necessarily um certain kinds of mistakes certainly you know don't drink bleach to uh try to kill a coronavirus for example that would be a huge mistake that would be a life-threatening mistake um on the other hand science proceeds by making mistakes and and so there it's a it's a process that meanders quite a bit but hopefully leads somewhere closer to understanding Phil Plate is a science communicator, a.k.a. the Bad Astronomer. And Susan Burns is an Ohio artist, and she helped us imagine the mold. And I'm Katie Davis. This transatlantic story was brought to you by the Goethe Institute. Find out more on our website, goethe.de slash USA. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.